I feel at home because you guys love to sing, and we sing our guts out at church too. So, and and you're still sticking around for the preaching, which is just amazing. My my view of Missouri Baptist has completely changed. So tomorrow, in the Sunday school hour, we're going to look at Ecclesiastes 9, 1-10 on how to put death to shame. And then in the main service, we'll look at chapter 12, verses 1-8, through when the gifts slip away, talking about old age. And so I probably shouldn't have told you that, because now none of the young people will go, well, it doesn't matter to me. Trust me, you'll be old before you know it. So if you take your Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, we're going to look at a text tonight that is in a sense sort of a a wonderful summary text of the things that we've already looked at. And we're going to read uh, starting in verse 1. We have a series of Proverbs in chapter 7. This is the word of the Lord. A good name is better than a good ointment, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. But when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. But the mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. And this too is breath, vapor. For oppression makes a wise man mad, and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. Do not be eager to be in your heart angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. Do not say... Why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. Wisdom along with an inheritance is good and an advantage to those who see the sun. For wisdom is protection just as money is protection, but the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of its possessors. And here's our text. Consider the work of God, for who is able to straighten what He has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. This certainly is the word of the living God. Let's pray. 
Father, how, how we love to sing the songs of Zion. How we love to sing the praises of our Redeemer. Father, really there's, there's no higher calling than to let His praise reverberate from our hearts through our lips. We thank You that You promised to be enthroned upon the praises of Your people. And Father, now as we come to this text, we pray that You would help us. Lord, we pray that it would, that it would comfort the afflicted. We pray that You would help us to see the, the beauty of Your hand in our lives and to trust You. We ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. There's not a single one of us here who knows what the future holds. You don't know what's going to happen tonight, let alone tomorrow. And Kohelet really has has taken that truth that you don't know the future. And he's kind of hammered away at that. But what if, what if my good days give way to bad days? What if things don't turn out the way I want them to? As a spouse, as a parent, as an employee, an employer, as a citizen. What happens... In this, in this fleeting life, if the bad things seem to just threaten my joy. I mean, in a sense, you only have so much time in this world. What do you do if most of it is filled with pain and disappointment? Kohelet actually gives us sound counsel. So in in verses 1 through 12, what he does, we're not going to go through the text, but let me just use it as a runway to get to, to our text. Solomon has laid out before us that, that there are two ways to live. There is the way of wisdom, and there's the way of the fool. Now you have to understand that when, when the Bible presents two ways, two types of persons, uh, in this case the wise and the fool, there's a sense in which the Scripture is pressing you to stop and consider and honestly evaluate what road am I on? What kind of person am I? And you cannot afford to be self-deceived in this. And so the wise person in these verses, is the one who accepts the hard things of life, like death or mourning. The fool, on the other hand, wants to be amused. And he's interested in death, but only insofar as he can be entertained to death. The wise man actually considers his own death. He looks at going to a, to a funeral and spending time in the house of mourning as far more profitable than going to a party. The wise man is 
painfully aware of the dangers of money. The wise man is, is a humble person. The wise man is the one who actually sees the danger of being an angry person and avoids it. The wise person is the one who's patient and wants more wisdom still. The fool, on the other hand, is the one that wants to go to the party. The fool is the one that wants to be entertained by the rowdy laughter. The fool is the one who loves to listen to the shallow songs that appeal to the flesh. And he's proud, he's not patient. His interest in money is strong and his interest in wisdom is nil. Two very different kinds of lives. The wise and the foolish. But here's the thing about the wise man. Is the wise man never believes that his own wisdom is enough. The wise man actually never believes that his own wisdom is sufficient to get him through this life. In fact, the wise man has another basic conviction, and that is, not only is God absolutely sovereign, but I trust Him in all things, even when life does not make sense. Because the wise man never views himself as a self-made man, he never views himself as a self-sufficient man, and he certainly never views himself as being in control. The wise man is actually the man who lives under the hand of God and accepts the mysteries that come with it. So here's a news flash to all the control freaks. Don't raise your hand. You who are control freaks live under an illusion because you're not in control of anything. God may perhaps mock you a little bit and make you think that you have some control, but it is a fantasy. You see, the the fool absolutely hates the sovereignty of God. The fool cannot stand the sovereignty of God. Why? Because the fool can't stand the fact that he is not in control. And so the fool wants to be able to manipulate the hand of providence. And the fool wants to be able to determine the outcomes. And the reality is is that he cannot. And so Kohelet then exhorts us as he lays out these two paths of the wise and the foolish. And then he brings us to this place place where he tells us consider God's work and accept God's work and live a life of faith that is real wisdom so if you notice verse 13 Kohelet says consider the work of God now throughout the book Kohelet has actually been the observer He's the one who's considering. He's the one who's pondering. He's the one who's studying. And you see this a couple times in chapter 1. You see it again in chapter 2. But now the focus ends up becoming incredibly explicit. Listen, you consider the work of God. 
You ponder God's hand. So, so the wise man has a lens that he looks through, that he ponders, that he studies, and it's the lens of God's work, or it's the lens of divine providence. And so Solomon now says, so consider God's work. I think probably the emphasis is not just God's work broadly, although that certainly could be true, but consider God's work in your life. And he says this, For who is able to straighten what he has bent? Now, if you have your Bible open, just flip back to chapter 1 real quick. Solomon says back in chapter 1, in verse 15, he says, What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Now, in chapter 7 and verse 13, he says, Who is able to straighten what he, what God has bent? And so in 115, Solomon observes that there are things in this life that are bent. And bent things seem to be wrong in God's world. Everybody knows that everything should be straight and symmetrical. Everybody knows that things should be perfectly balanced. Everybody knows that, right? And so, you and I are born with this innate sense of wanting things to be straight. Case in point. Our three grandsons come over to our house regularly. And there are times where we'll play board games with them. But playing board games with a nine-year-old and two seven-year-olds means automatically that the pieces are not going to be perfectly centered in the squares. Okay? But if you just, I mean, just theorize with me. If you're playing with their grandmother, the game is slowed down to a snail's pace because she cannot stand to see things not centered. I'm like, they're seven. They don't care. I do. Hold on a second. Okay? We like straight stuff. We like centered stuff. There's something, if it's bent, you're kind of like, that's not the way it's really supposed to be. And then Solomon says, so there's bent stuff in the world, and who's able to straighten it And the the reason he asked the question is because it's God who bent it. We want to straighten the bent things, but we can't because God is the one who bent it. So the Bible teaches us without any equivocation that God has all power, God is perfect, God is wise, God has a holy will, He's absolutely sovereign over absolutely everything. And so Job learns this the hard way, right? So in Job 42.2, Job comes up and with this statement. He says, I know you can do all 
all things, and no purpose of thine can be thwarted. In other words, once God extends His hand to do something, there's nobody that's strong enough to turn it back. Once God intends to do something, there's nobody that can stop Him and say, what are you doing? Daniel 4.35 All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but He does according to His holy will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off His hand or say to Him, What have you done? When that little one comes into the world and you're trying to teach them uh, don't touch certain things, right? And they stretch out their hand, what do you do? What do you do? Oh, you're afraid you'll go to jail if you say slap it, aren't you? You slap their hand. When you slap their hand, what do they do? They pull it back, right? Now, some of you have special kids. And you slap the hand, they pull it back. You have one of two kinds. The kind who thinks you've turned away and they're doing this. Right? And then the other that doesn't care if you're looking and just goes this. Right? What do you do? You slap it again. Right? What are you doing? You are, you are actually telling the child, I am thwarting your purpose. I am thwarting your purpose. The Scripture says, when God extends His hand... Who in the world is big enough to slap it and send it back? Who in the world is big enough to say, Stop it! What are you doing? And the answer is, absolutely nobody. And so, here we are, we live in this world, and and the sovereign God who has this immutable will and this indomitable power bends things, and when He bends them, they are bent, and you don't have the power to straighten them. Now, the proud in spirit want it the way they want it. The humble realize that the crook in the lot, as Thomas Boston put it, is there by the sovereign hand of God. And they're patient. We just read earlier, patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. So Solomon says, listen, consider the work of God and know this, that He's bent stuff. What is the bent stuff? It's the stuff in our lives that we're not overly happy about. It's the stuff in our lives that we wish it was straight. It's the stuff in our lives that that we look at that and we go, I really, really wish it wasn't like that. And so now what Kohelet is going to do is he's going to tell us, accept God's work. So when God bends something, it's bent no matter what you're going to do. And so accept God's work. And so notice the way that he tells us to do that. In the day of prosperity, be happy. So in other words, in that day when things seem straight, when everything seems good, when everything seems to be going the way it's supposed to be, literally the day of prosperity is the day of good. And then he says, be happy. 
which is literally be in the good. In the good day, be in the good. That is, in the day of prosperity, be in the prosperity. In the day, you could say it this way, in the day of blessing, be in the blessing. In other words, enjoy it. The NIV puts it like this, when times are good, be happy. And what I want to say to you tonight is that there's nothing wrong with enjoying the good days that God gives, the days of prosperity, the days of blessing, the days when, when things seem to be going well and there is a happiness to life. Enjoy those days. They're a gift. When, when days come like that, that is, that is, in a sense, just a blessing from the hand of God. It's the smile of God, as it were. And so there's a song we sing once in a while, and we sing, Blessed be your name when the sun's shining down on me, when the world is all it should be. Blessed be your name. And so if you're in a good place in your marriage and you're in a good place with your kids and you're in a good place at work, rejoice. Be happy. Some, some of you are so convinced that, that, that God's messing with you that you think, you know what? I know the other shoe's going to drop any minute so I don't want to get too happy. The shoe is going to drop any minute. But be happy until it does. Enjoy it until it does. You do understand that the command to enjoy life is just as much a command of God as you shall not steal. So if you're a miserable, grumpy Christian, you might as well be a thief. Okay, I'll rewind that, Scott. If you are a grumpy, miserable Christian, you're breaking God's command just as sure as a thief stealing is breaking God's command. And so Solomon says, listen, God makes straight things, God makes crooked things, and in the day of prosperity, be happy. But then notice this next one. But in the day of adversity, consider. So good days don't stick around forever. We know that. You, you, you just live life and you realize the day of prosperity doesn't last a lifetime. And so then Solomon says, so in the day of adversity, which is literally in the day of evil, that is in the day when bad stuff happens. Now if you think about it, in the good day, be happy, and let's just say in the bad day, what would be the, the parallel idea? Be sad, whine, and complain. Right? That would be the parallel thought. If in the good day you're supposed to be happy, what should you do in the bad day? Just cry about it. And that's not what Solomon leads us to. He turns around and he says, Rather, in the day of adversity, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. You do understand that God is sovereign not just over the good stuff in your life. He's sovereign over all the stuff in your life. Including the bad stuff in your life and including the painful stuff in your life and including the disappointing things in your life. And the Scripture teaches us 
that God is the one, and this is Isaiah 45, 7, God is the one who is creating shalom, right? So well-being, but he's also the one creating, and the New American Standard says calamity, but the Hebrew word is ra'ah. That is the idea of evil. Now, the Bible never teaches us that God is the author of evil or sin, but he's certainly sovereign over the evil. Lamentations 3.38, Is it not from the mouth of the Lord that both good and evil go forth? Good and calamity, shalom and calamity, right? And so we have this, we have this conviction. And so not only do we sing, blessed be your name when the sun's shining down on me and the world's all as it should be, but we also sing, blessed be your name on the road marked with suffering. Though there's pain in the offering, blessed be your name. And so what Solomon is saying is, listen, reflect on both. Reflect that God has made both. That day of goodness, that day of happiness, that day of gladness, that's a gift from God. God made that day. But in the days when things get bent and things are crooked and things aren't going the way you want them to go, God's sovereign over that as well. And God has a purpose in both of those things. And He knows what He's doing even though you don't. You acknowledge that He's over both days. He's sovereign over both days. There's a fascinating passage in the book of Job. So, Satan appears before God in the book of Job. And Job is brought up in conversation. But who brings him up? God. It's, it's not as if Satan had designs and said, hey, what about Job? God Himself is the one who said, consider my servant Job, right? And so, there ends up being this, this interaction between God and Satan, and, and so Satan does his best within the parameters that God sets, and at the end of that uh, tragic chapter 1, and, and you have this, you have this uh, like cascade of tragedy. And while he was still speaking, another came up and said. And while he was still speaking, another came up and said. And while he was still speaking, another came up and said. And then, of course, it climaxes with his, all of his children dying. And that ends with Job saying, the Lord gave, the Lord took away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all of these things, the writer says, Job did not sin with his lips, ascribing unseemliness to God. Okay. Now, did he know that God took away? Absolutely. Did he blame God in a sinful way? Absolutely not. He gave thanks to God. So Satan goes back and he says, and God again says, have you considered my servant Job? And I think, you got to remember, the whole book, Job does not know what happened behind the scenes in chapters 1 and 2. You and I do. We know the conversation. We know the backstory. He never did. I imagine if he did, he might have been able to say, Lord, can you quit bringing my name up in conversations with the devil? Alright? Satan says to God, skin for skin. That is, you know, he's serving you, but man, if you let me, if you let me touch him, 
then He'll curse you. You let me, you let me actually, you know, forget stuff, forget kids. What Job is about is Job, so let me touch him, let me deal with him, and God says, do your worst, only you can't kill him. And so then Job is suffering miserably and he's broken out in boils and he takes broken pottery and he's scraping those boils and he's trying to get just a little bit of relief. And then, and then the next trial for Job comes and you know who it is? Mrs. Job. Why don't you curse God and die? How's that? I think she needed marriage counseling. (laughs) Just curse God and get it over with. This is ridiculous. And so, you know what Job says? Job says... You speak as one of the old foolish women. Shall we accept good from God and not adversity? In other words, Job understood that his good days, his days of prosperity, his days of blessing, those were from the hand of the Lord. But just as sure, that bad day and those bad days were also from the hand of the Lord. And he said, look, we have to learn to accept both of them from God's hand. Kohelet says, consider this. God made both of them. Ends up with sort of a strange statement. Last line of verse 14. So that man will not discover anything that will be after him. Yeah. So God makes the good days. God is God of our bad days. And He keeps us from knowing what will come after us. We want to know. But you know what? If you could know, you probably wouldn't want to know. Right? And so just like Ecclesiastes 3, 1 to 15... There's a time for this and there's a time for that. There's a reason for this. There's a reason for that. And in the end, I don't need to know in this life how it's all going to settle out. What Solomon does here is he he drills down deep on our limitations. Again, you don't have the capacity to read divine providence. You don't have the capacity to understand what God is doing in the good days or in the, in, in the days of, of evil or calamity. God's not granted that to you. You can't see into the future. You know all you can do is you can rest in the hands of a sovereign God, enjoying life as He gives it, reflecting on Him when He dispenses adversity and trusting Him in the midst of darkness and rejoicing in the days of prosperity. And I will tell you that it's that kind of wisdom that will keep you sane. It's that kind of wisdom that keeps you anchored into the person and the character of God. And it is that kind of wisdom that can produce an ultimate happiness in your life that goes far beyond anything you could drum up in this life. When I look back on on 
our brain tumor ordeal. I I would not want to do it again. Alright? I wouldn't. Somebody says, hey, you, how about we get the same doctor and he like pulls your face off and cuts the top of your head off again. You want to do it? I'd be like, no, it's okay. Uh, but I also look back and I think to myself, the day of our deepest adversity, there was a settled joy knowing that my God loves me, my God is taking care of me, and whatever the outcome would be, I would be okay. Because my God lives. And so, when I say that this perspective of the sovereignty of God, the God of my good days and the God of my bad, actually not only keeps me sane, but it's an anchor for my joy, I look back and I can say, and I know Ariel could say the very same thing, and those of you who have suffered in in other ways, we could all say the same thing with the psalmist. It was good for me that I was afflicted so that I could learn your statutes. I love the good days. I love the days of prosperity. I love the days when the sun's shining down on me and all seems like it should be, right? But when do I learn the most? I don't learn the most in the midst of the sunshine beating down on my gloriously tanned forehead. I learn the most when the clouds of darkness come. I learn the most in the day of calamity. I learn the most in the day of adversity. And so far from fearing the bad days, you understand that God has made them both. So what do you do when adversity strikes? Here's what you don't do. Adversity comes. Don't do this. I believe in the sovereignty of God. God has ordained this for His glory. Bring it on. It's not what you do. It's not what you do. You don't, you don't stay, stand there with this stoic face as if somehow your set jaw and your determination to take whatever God throws your way is somehow godly. That is not godly. That is a kind of carnal fatalism. What do you do? You don't just sit there and look at, 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 at what God is doing in your life and just say, okay, well I guess this is the way it's got to be and just be this stoic fatalist as if God's decree and God's plan is some, some sort of cold, sterile, clinical decree. You don't just become a cynic and say, well, I believe in the sovereignty of God. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. No. What is the equation of God's sovereignty plus my pain? What is that equal? What that equals is God working in His goodness to help me grow and to glorify Him. 
And so, when that day of adversity comes, I don't stand there and just act like, um, you know, this, this will date me, but uh, was it uh, Robert Conrad, right? Puts the battery on his shoulder, so like only, only like the super old people in here right now know what I'm talking about. Okay, dare you, knock it off, right? Okay? Okay, there's, there's, there's no virtue in, in standing up and just saying, okay, give me your best shot. By the way, if God did that, you'd be toast. Okay? Rather, what you do is you go, the God who is bringing the adversity into my life, He's not an impersonal God. He's deeply personal. He's near me and He's near me in the day of adversity. God is near the brokenhearted. He's good. He's faithful. He's kind. And the question is, how do I know that? I know that two ways. First of all, His Word tells me. What I see may not comport with what my faith tells me. I remember the probably the most prolonged, worst period of my life. I was in seminary. We lived in Portland, Oregon, where the sun never shines. It is a cursed place. And I was in I was in the depth of despair. And I would get up in the morning and get ready for school, and I would walk up four blocks to seminary from our house. We lived in a in a in a neighborhood that was built in the nineteen twenties and the nineteen thirties, magnificent old houses. And I still remember walking and seeing on the sidewalk the dates imprinted on the sidewalk. 1929, 1930, right? And I remember every day walking to school through tears. God, You are good and You do good. I don't know how this is good. I don't know how You're going to turn it for good. But what I know is Psalm 119.68 tells me you are good and you do good. You know what God does? God takes His Word and He strengthens our soul and He strengthens our faith and He, and he holds us up. It's not as if day one, God, you're good and you do good. Wow, I'm blessed. Doesn't work that way. It is day after day of preaching the goodness of God to you when He doesn't look like He's being good. And it is a matter of faith, not of sight. So you cling to the Word. That's how you know in the day of adversity, God's not punishing you. God's not just simply trying to make your life miserable because He has nothing else to do that day. But rather, God is working in you for your good, for His glory. And He's working through His sovereignty in the day of adversity. That's the way you know it. But there's another way to know that God is good. And that is this. In our greatest 
greatest evil and in our greatest adversity, God entered into this world through His Son who did what? Who came and bore our sins and bore our evil and paid the penalty for all the sins that we had done. And God God raised Him up from the dead and in light of that, in light of the Father sending the Son to be the propitiation for your sins, do you know what we see? We don't see a cold God. We don't see an impersonal God. We see a tender, sovereign God who actually sees us in our need and meets us in our need and gives us everything we need in the depth of our despair. And so we look to the One who is good. We look to the One who does good. We look to the One in the day of adversity. And we don't look at Him in a way that hardens us. We look at Him and our hearts melt because we know that He loves us. And how do we know that we love? He loves us? Because in our very worst... He gave us His very best. Your Heavenly Father has already done more good for you than you could ever even imagine. The cross proves it. The cross is the pulpit of God's love. And so the sovereign God who bends things and has not given us the ability to straighten them, you know what He says to us? It's as as if He says to us something like this, you know, I'm not looking to see how strong you are. I'm not looking to see if you you can budge what I bent. I'm not looking for your strength. I'm looking for your submission. I'm not looking for your strength or determination. I'm looking for your gladness and my goodness. I'm looking for you to embrace in me a happiness that goes beyond your day of adversity. I'm just looking for you to trust me because I'm good. And so, brothers and sisters, God Himself is the God of our good days and our bad days. And He is worthy of our trust and our praise. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray for the person right now who really is going through the day of adversity and they feel the pain and they feel the disappointment and the hurt and we pray, Father, that even tonight that You would give them the grace to be able to see that both days come from You and to trust You in the midst of all of it. Father, we do pray that You'd give us a good night's rest tonight, that You would meet with us on the Lord's Day tomorrow, and that You would continue to be exalted in our midst. In Jesus' name, Amen.